Well, this morning's message, I'm going to start off talking about Abraham Lincoln. But even before we get into him, you know, you can count on it. The circumstances and events that lead to greatness in a person often develop in the hidden years of their life. When no one's looking, and quite frankly, nobody cares. That's certainly true of America's 16th, probably the greatest president of the United States. In fact, according to eight different studies, uh, many recognize that no president has been more beloved than Abraham Lincoln. These are nine studies over seven decades. There's probably been more, but this is one of the most beloved, favorite, if you will, of many individuals. And one might assume that it was a fitting climax to an already prestigious life. Surely he grew up with a silver spoon in his mouth. And it must have been easy to slide into president. Yet if you know your history, that was hardly the case. Abraham Lincoln in 1816, their family was forced from their home. He was only seven years old at the time. A few years later, his mother died when he was at age nine. In 1831, he made an attempt at business, but it failed. Soon after that, he ran for state legislator unsuccessfully. The same year he lost his job, he applied to law school, but was laughed out of consideration. He borrowed money from a friend for yet another business venture, and that business too failed. And so Lincoln claimed bankruptcy and spent the next 17 years paying off debt. In 1835... He met a young lady named Ann Rutledge. They became engaged, but she grew sick and passed away. The following year, Abraham Lincoln had a nervous breakdown, spent six months in bed recovering. In 1838, he sought Speaker of State Legislature, but was defeated. In 1840, he sought Elector of the State, but again was defeated. In 1843, he ran for Congress, but this too he lost. 1846 ran again for Congress and lost again. In 1849, he sought job of land officer in his home state, but was rejected. In 1854, he ran for Senate, but he lost there too. In 1856, he sought vice president nomination, but was defeated. In 1858, he ran for Senate again, but lost again. Finally, in 1860, Abraham Lincoln was elected to the presidency of the United States of America. And if you know your history, you know he endured the most devastating war our country has ever known. This humble man was so beloved, he was elected for a second term. Sadly, only five days after Lee surrendered on April 14, 1865, Lincoln was assassinated. He was dead at just 56 years of age. Yet not knowing his background, perhaps we're quick to assume, my, what a magnificent background he must have had. But if you take a deeper look, you see a life riddled with failure and tragedy and heartache and pain. And so perhaps we're surprised or even shocked. How could this be? But the fact remains, the steel of greatness is forged in the pit. It was true of Joseph in his dungeon experience. It was true of David on the run from Saul. And oftentimes it's true of all of us. Don't forget that, especially when you're in the pit and you're convinced that 
Not any good can come from it. It was also true of another man who's going to be the focus of our study for the next several months. As we start a series, Paul, a man of grace and grit. Our first introduction to him is hardly either one. It's brutal and it's bloody. And it's not Paul, but rather Saul of Tarsus. Here we find Saul in Scripture. And it's a horror to behold. He stands nodding in agreement and guarding their garments while they stone God's prophet, Stephen. He looks more like a terrorist than a devout follower of Judaism. And we could ask, well, who is Stephen? Well, Acts 6 verse 8 describes a man full of faith and power. Verse 10, speaking with spirit, with wisdom. Verse 15, whose countenance shone like the face of an angel. Yet they still stoned him, murdered him in cold blood. And why? Well, as Stephen was preaching boldly for Christ, learned rabbis and doctors of the law engaged in public discussion with him. They were confident. This is what they were all about. They could gain an easy victory over Stephen. But they found very quickly they were unable to resist the wisdom and the spirit by which he spoke. He ably defended the truths he advocated and uttered, utterly defeated his opponents. And in him was this promise fulfilled, Luke 21, 14 and 15. Therefore, settle in your hearts not to meditate beforehand on what you will answer, for I will give you a mouth and wisdom which all your adversaries will not be able to contradict or resist. That was fulfilled in Stephen. And the priests and the rabbis saw the power that attended him, and they were filled not with surrender, but with hatred. They wanted to silence him by putting him to death. And so they brought him before the Sanhedrin, the council, if you will, for trial. The Sanhedrin called the council in Acts 6, verse 12, was a 71-member Jewish high court. It's located in Jerusalem. And in position number one, the high priest would sit, head and shoulders above everyone else in the room. Then in position two were all the members of the Sanhedrin arranged in a semicircle, three rows deep, we believe. And in position four were two scribes to record the court's rulings. And last, in position number three, a defendant. And in this case, it was Stephen. And while scripture doesn't mention it, scholars feel it highly probable that Saul of Tarsus would have been one of those 71, that he would have been in the room. And in fact, Spirit of Prophecy says Saul of Tarsus was present and took a leading part against Stephen. He brought the weight of eloquence and the logic of the rabbis to bear upon the case to convince the people that Stephen was preaching delusive and dangerous doctrines. The scripture says they brought in false witnesses against Stephen. Yet Stephen connected Jesus Christ so well with all of Jewish history and the prophecies. And maybe later today, you can go home and read the entire discourse of Stephen. It's rather long, but it comes to a head in Acts chapter seven. And so if you have your Bibles, I would invite you to turn with me as we begin this journey, looking at the man, Paul, who is still Saul. We're in Acts chapter seven. Stephen has been addressing this group throughout the chapter. But in verse 51, he holds nothing back at this point. Stephen says, you stiff-necked and uncircumcised in heart and ears, you always resist the Holy Spirit. As your fathers did, so do you. Which of the prophets did your fathers not persecute? Perhaps he's thinking of Isaiah or Jeremiah or Ezekiel. 
And they killed those who foretold the coming of the just one, of whom you now have become the betrayers and murderers, who have received the law by the direction of angels and have not kept it. Verse 54. When they heard these things, they were cut to the heart, and they gnashed at him with their teeth. Keep your finger there. We're going to come back to that. But just turn your Bibles, if you will, a few verses over to Acts chapter 2. We have the same phrase used by the same author. Acts chapter 2, verse 36. It is the day of Pentecost, is the context of Acts chapter 2. The Holy Spirit is being poured out. People are accusing them of being drunk. And Peter stands up and addresses the men of Judea and all who dwell in Jerusalem. And so Peter takes them through the scriptures and prophecy and finally concludes. And in verse 36, he says, Therefore, all the house of Israel know assuredly that God has made this Jesus, whom you crucified, both Lord and Christ. Verse 37, now when they heard this, they were what? Cut to the heart. Same phrase, same expression. We just read it in chapter 7. Here it is again. But notice what they say in response to that. They were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, men and brethren, what shall we do? They're cut to the heart. They're convicted and they're saying, what should we do? And they say, repent. Let every one of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission of sins and you shall receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. But if we flip back to Acts chapter 7, verse 54, and when they heard these things, they were cut to the heart and they gnashed at him with their teeth. But he, being full of the Holy Spirit, gazed into heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God and said, look, I see the heavens open and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. He's seen Jesus serving as our high priest. Verse 57, then they cried out with a loud voice, stopped their ears and ran at him with one accord. It's not always necessarily good to be of one accord. It depends on what you're on one accord about. And notice that they are physically stopping their ears to keep truth from coming in. And then verse 58, and they cast him, Stephen, out of the city and stoned him. And the witnesses laid down their clothes at the feet of a young man named Saul. There he is. First mention. Verse 59, and they stoned Stephen as he was calling on God and saying, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. Just as Jesus did. Then verse 60. Then he knelt down and cried out with a loud voice, Lord, do not charge them with this sin. And when he had said this, he fell asleep. Sounds a lot like, Father, forgive them. They know not what they do. This is none other than the author that we just read about here, standing guard over the clothes. You see him in the picture. The author of Romans. Corinthians, Philemon, Galatians, Philippians, Thessalonians, Ephesians, Colossians, Timothy, Titus. I believe Hebrews. And you would think the man loved the Savior from birth. Folks, it's not even close. He hated the name of Jesus. So much so, he became a self-avowed, violent aggressor, persecuting and killing Christians in allegiance to the God of heaven. And shocking though it may seem, we must never forget the pit from which he came. Because the better we understand the darkness of his past, the more we understand his gratitude for grace. Yes, this is the introduction that scripture gives us of this young man named Saul. He's not out running with his friends. He's not doing innocent things. He's standing guard over their clothing as they kill God's innocent prophet Samuel. 
Now, we have to admit that his childhood was not marked by anger and violence. By his other statements, we can kind of cobble together his past, if you will. In Acts 21, verse 39, he says, I am a Jew from Tarsus in Sicilia, a citizen of no ordinary city. Tarsus at that time was a busy metropolis with diverse culture and international commerce. And if you find it up here on the map, Tarsus is in Sicilia. Today, it's part of modern Turkey. And this is where Saul was born. If you find Jerusalem there on the map, go up the coast there. And just as it turns yellow, you see Tarsus. About a dozen miles from the glistening beaches of the Mediterranean. And they're beautiful. I imagine even much more then than today. And the town is cradled in the Taurus mountain range running from the seacoast to the north, which provided sweeping protective shield, the mountains did. And it was also part of a popular trade route connecting the Orient in the east to Rome in the west. There were only a few passages through the mountains, and Tarsus was one of those. We also can piece together that Saul's parents were Pharisees, who were most fervent in Jewish nationalism and strict obedience to the law of Moses. And as such, friendships with Gentile children was certainly discouraged and frowned upon. And being raised there in Tarsus, he would converse in Greek. But at home, they would speak Aramaic, the language of Judea, a derivative of Hebrew. And while Roman citizens, they looked to Jerusalem as their holy city. They sought an honor to be Israelites, the people of promise, to whom alone the living God had revealed his glory and his plans. And so by his 13th birthday, Saul would have mastered Jewish history, the poetry of the Psalms, have a mastery of the prophets, and he would be ready now for higher education. For this, Saul would have been sent to Jerusalem to study about 600 miles away on foot, but perhaps he went by boat. And it says in Acts 22, verse 2, I am indeed a Jew born in Tarsus of Cilicia, but brought up in the city at the feet of Gamaliel taught according to the strictness of our father's law and was zealous towards God. Tradition would tell us that he probably spent five or six years at the feet of Gamaliel. Here, Saul would have learned how to dissect a text. He would have learned how to debate question and answer style known as a diatribe. They were taught to be part preacher and part lawyer. So they could prosecute and defend those who broke the sacred law. And Saul, he had a very powerful mind, which would lead him to the Sanhedrin, the Jewish Supreme Court, if you will. These 71 men ruled over Jewish life and religion. The buck stopped with them. But when we open the book of Acts, we see everything that they have been building their dynasties upon crumbling around them, all because of a life, death, and resurrection of a man named Jesus. And it was causing huge upheaval. And then further with Pentecost, the outpouring of the Holy Spirit, things were changing fast. You're familiar with this verse in Acts chapter 2, verse 41. Then those who gladly received his word were baptized, and that day about 3,000 souls were added to them. These were maddening times for the Sanhedrin. Their attempts to silence the followers of Jesus by crucifying their master had backfired, and it had backfired significantly. They were doing everything in their power to squelch the rebellion. But there's another key piece we need to look at. Saul's not mentioned here, but it only makes sense that he would have been in that place. Turn back to Acts chapter 5. We're going to read from verse 17. Acts chapter 5, verse 17, we read, 
Then the high priest rose up and all those who were with him, which is the sect of the Sadducees, and they were filled with indignation. Verse 18, and laid their hands on the apostles and put them in the common prison. But at night, an angel of the Lord opened the prison doors and brought them out and said, go stand in the temple and speak to the people all the words of this life. And when they had heard that, they entered the temple early in the morning and taught. Talk about backfire. The religious leaders thought they had dealt with the rebels. They'd put them behind bars. But in reality, what transpires with the angel coming and releasing and so on, only further motivated them to preach with greater conviction. Look at what God has done. Nothing can hold back and stop what God is doing through his prophets and his people. Jerusalem is set ablaze with their preaching and the religious officials were becoming a shrinking minority and unaware of what had happened. An emergency meeting is called and we continue and pick it up still in verse 21, the second half. But the high priest, they're unaware of what's happened. The high priest and those with him came and called the council together with all the elders and the children of Israel and sent to the prison to have them brought. But when the officers came and did not find them in prison... They returned and reported, saying, Indeed, we found the prison shut securely and the guards standing outside before the doors. But when we opened them, we found no one inside. What do you mean you didn't find anyone inside? I mean, this is getting embarrassing. And these prejudiced judges are out of their minds trying to figure out what happened. But things only get worse for them as we continue. Verse 25, so one came and told them saying, look, the men whom you put in prison are standing in the temple and teaching the people. Verse 26, and the captain went with the officers and brought them without violence for they feared the people lest they should be stoned. Don't miss that last statement, by the way, that last little detail. These pious leaders feared their lives as they sensed the tide turning against them. More and more, I imagine people in the streets are saying, hey, don't touch these guys. They're telling us things that we need to hear, things which you never told us. I wonder if there could be some parallels there to some end time three angels message preaching. Don't touch these guys. We want to hear what they have to say. And so for fear of their life, they try to take them peaceably. Verse 27, and when they had brought them, they set them before the council. And the high priest asked them, again, the Sanhedrin saying, did we not strictly command you not to teach in this name? And look, you have filled Jerusalem with your doctrine, your false doctrine, we could say, and intend to bring this man's blood on us. You're telling people that we're the reason that this false Messiah was crucified. I want you to know the Romans did it. Uh Uh-huh. You're making us look bad. The people are turning against us. But I love how Peter responds. Notice verse 29. But Peter and the other apostles answered and said, this is holy boldness. We ought to obey God rather than men, period. The God of our fathers raised up Jesus, whom you murdered by hanging on a tree. Him God has exalted to his right hand to be prince and savior, to give repentance to Israel and forgiveness of sins. And we are witnesses to these things. And so also is the Holy Spirit whom has given to those who obey him. And when they heard this, they were furious and plotted to kill them. I imagine 
that Saul would have been part of the they that heard the speech, that was furious and plotted to kill them, plotted to kill Peter. You ever thought of that before? While standing in the shadows of the room, I imagine the hair on the back of his neck is bristling. This young, pious, up-and-coming Pharisee listened angrily at this ignorant, untrained fisherman named Peter who spoke of the now-dead Jesus who claimed to be God. It was almost more than he could bear. His passion, I imagine, boiled within him as Saul began formulating plans. Could it be? Thinking if I could just get my hands on him, I would kill him like all the rest. Little did he know that this ignorant fisherman would one day be his co-laborer in establishing Christian churches throughout the known world. Not yet, not now, but it's pretty ironic if you stop and think about it. But before Saul could organize an assault on this man and all of his companions, God intervened in another surprising turn of events as Saul's mentor stood to his feet. Verse 34, then one in the council stood up, a Pharisee named Gamaliel, a teacher of the law held in respect by all the people and commanded them to put the apostles outside for a little while. This is the same one that Saul studied under as a teenager in Jerusalem. I imagine Saul is breathlessly watching as his mentor is now going to be in action, like a law student after graduation visits a courtroom to observe his admired professor practice law. He's going to go after him. He's going to get him. I need to take notes here. This is going to be good. He's going to fix it. And we continue verse 35. And he said to them, men of Israel, take heed to yourselves what you intend to do regarding these men. For some time ago, Thaddeus rose up claiming to be somebody. A number of men, about 400, joined him. He was slain and all who obeyed him were scattered and came to nothing. After this man, Judas of Galilee rose up in a few days in the days of the census and drew away many people after him. He also perished and all who obeyed him were dispersed. And now I say to you, verse 38, keep away from these men and let them alone. For if this plan or this work is of men, it will come to nothing. But if it is of God, you cannot overthrow it, lest you even be found to fight against God. I imagine Saul was shocked in disbelief. Let them alone? Let them alone? This man was supposed to be the spokesman for Judaism and the law. Has Galileo lost his mind? I mean, has he just gone soft? What is this? Yet I imagine despite his initial reactions, I imagine a seed was planted, a seed that would grow in Saul. You cannot fight against God. You can't fight against God. You can't fight against God. I believe through the intervention of God, Gamaliel became or becomes an unexpected ally, and Peter's life is spared. Keep that in mind next time you feel your situation is hopeless, by the way. God is still in control. Silently and sovereignly working all things out according to his perfect plan. You cannot fight against God. And so wisely, the religious leaders took Gamaliel's advice. Verse 40, 
And they agreed with him. And when they had called for the apostles and beaten them, they commanded that they should not speak in the name of Jesus and let them go. This was a painful warning. I mean, when you get your skin stripped off your back, maybe you won't forget. We mean business. Back off was the message. Flogging was a terribly painful and humiliating torture. Yet here is where our respect for these men of God only intensifies. Look at their response here in verse 41 and 42. So they departed from the presence of the council, rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer shame for his name. When's the last time you did that? Thank you, Lord, for counting me worthy to suffer for your name, for your cause. And they're rejoicing. They've just been flogged. They have blood all across their backs. Praise the Lord. We were able to suffer in his name. And then verse 42, and daily in the temple and in every house, they did not cease teaching and preaching Jesus as the Christ. You cannot fight against God. I mean, this is incredible. It almost seems as if the blood on their backs has not yet dried and scabbed over and they're back at it. They're preaching Jesus as the Christ. And Saul hated them for that. It was what drove him to more aggressive action against them, which he later admits. Acts 26, verse 10. This I also did in Jerusalem and many of the saints I shut up in prison, having received authority from the chief priests. And when they were put to death, I cast my vote against them, Saul says. I hated those Christians. Another one, Acts 10, verse 11. And I punished them after in every synagogue and compelled them to blaspheme and being exceedingly enraged against them, I persecuted them even to foreign cities. He's going out of his way to search them down like animals. In another confession, Paul writes of his former life this way. I was formerly a blasphemer and a persecutor and a violent aggressor, 1 Timothy 1, 13. And this is the same man who would later write of God's grace and God's mercy. This is the same man who would later preach to his opponents. And the idea would be the same. You cannot fight against God. But until the grace of Christ laid hold of him, he violently opposed everyone and everything related to Jesus. Maybe you can relate. And he'd do it all, by the way, in the name of God, blindly believing his bloody deeds honored God by ridding the earth of this cult. Have mercy. One of the greatest people to be feared, a religious terrorist, because they're doing it in the name of God. That was Saul. Acts chapter 8, verse 3, Saul began ravaging the church, entering house after house and dragging off men and women. He would put them in prison. I mean, it's really difficult to imagine such a deep hatred. There's no question that Saul was sincere, but friends, he was sincerely wrong. But for now, that's where we're going to leave Saul. But before we conclude, three observations about Paul, a man of grace and grit. In every great life, I believe there's a surprise or surprises, often jolting surprises. Who would have guessed that the one writer of the New Testament, the prominent writer of the New Testament, would probably have the most significant impact On each of us here in this room today in 2019, who would have thought that would have come from a man with such spiritual blindness and physical brutality? But it did. That's why he claimed the title, Chief of Sinners. You may be tempted to soften that. Don't. Leave it alone. Let it be. I don't believe Saul was attempting to sound modest. 
In his mind, he was the chief of sinners. And he very well may have been. But three observations. The first, no matter how you appear to others today, everyone, and that means everyone, has a past. You would be amazed if you knew the darkness lurking in the past of those people who have made a difference in your life. And I'm not trying to excuse it. I'm not trying to say that it's okay. But I am saying that all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. All of us can look back at times of spiritual blindness, a time that was neither pleasant nor encouraging. It's the life we lived before turning to the Savior. It's just that we're not as vulnerable and open as Paul was. I'm not sure that we need to be, but it's just that he lays it out. Colossians 1, 13 and 14, Paul writes, He has delivered us from the power of darkness. Have you ever been controlled by the power? And let me tell you, it's powerful. Darkness is powerful and it hangs on and clings to you. He has delivered us from the power of darkness and conveyed us into the kingdom of the son of his love in whom we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins. The fact remains, it was grace that stooped down to pick up Saul and picks up all of us. How do the words go of that hymn that we're going to sing here in just a moment? Amazing grace. How sweet the sound that saved a, what's the word? Wretch like me. Leave that word in there. Don't replace it. Our existence before Christ was among the wretched. Let's never forget what life was like outside the boundaries of God's grace. Saul was there and so were we. Observation number two. Good news, no amount of, or depth of sin in your past can trump the grace of God. Regardless of what you have done, no one is beyond hope. Well, that's fine for everybody else, but that doesn't work for me. Friends, no one is beyond hope. If you question that, remember the brash Pharisee of Tarsus. And when the Lord saved him, he didn't put him on probation. The disciples did that. No, we will see that God gave Saul a new name and in the process made him a new creature or a new creation. I mean, that's what makes grace so amazing is that God can take this villain, this murderer with blood on his hands, with anger in his heart, doing this thing for God. And he can reach down and touch that life and change it by grace and say, I'm going to use you as one of the greatest instruments in my hands. That's grace. And it's amazing. Observation number three, and then we're going to go. Even though your past is soiled, anyone can find a new beginning with God. Anyone? Anyone. Friends, it's never too late to start doing what's right. And Jesus promises to help you. He doesn't say, get it right and come back and see me when you do. He says, I'm here to help you. I'm here to forgive you of your sins. I'm here to cleanse you, to show you a better way. If you'll just walk with me. When Saul knelt before the living God, he finally faced the reality of his sin. Deep within the man, Christ transformed his life and he started doing what was right. Grace provides that sort of a new beginning. Don't get stuck on where you were. Don't waste your time focusing on what you used to be. The hope we have in Christ means that there is a brighter tomorrow. The sins are forgiven. The shame is wiped away. We're no longer chained to a deep, dark pit of the past. 
Yet I imagine in our congregation this size this morning, someone is stuck because of something in the past. And perhaps they feel pinned to the ground as a result of it with embarrassment or with shame or with fear. And you're crippled by it. And you're saying to yourself, I don't belong here. But the reality is, friends, none of us do. That way of thinking is from the pit, by the way. Satan longs to rub your nose in the dirt. Why? It's his way of distracting you from the marvelous claims of God's grace. And I would submit to you, don't allow him that power in your life. Don't allow him to speak those falsehoods. He's the father of lies. Oh, but it's true. I did those things. Yes, you did. But it's also true that you've been forgiven. You've been washed by the blood of the lamb and you're a new creature in Jesus Christ. Speak the truth, all the truth. Don't allow the devil that power in your life. Around you are people who have no greater claim on grace than you do. And the Lord mercifully brought them and you, all of us, out of the pit of sin. And if he could turn a Saul of Tarsus, engaged in this murderous rampage, into Paul, the apostle, who preached and lived the message of grace, my goodness, if he can do that with Saul, he can do that with me. Notice we don't remember the apostle Paul as a Christian killing Christian. That was no longer his identity. He was changed. He was a new creature in Jesus Christ. And so it is with you. You're no longer a drunk Christian, a spaced out Christian, or whatever you want to fill in the blank Christian. You are a new creature in Jesus Christ. Well, you don't know where I was last night, preacher. That was last night. What about today? 1 Corinthians 15, 9 and 10, Paul said, For I am the least of the apostles, and not fit to be called an apostle, because I persecuted the church of God. You think it was embarrassing for him to admit that? Was it shameful for him to have to face that time and time again? But he just says very plainly, But by the grace of God, I am what I am. Would that be our prayer today? You know the words well, amazing grace. How sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. I once was lost, but now I'm found. Was blind, but now I see. "'Twas grace that taught my heart to fear, and grace my fears relieved. How precious did the grace appear, the hour I first believed. Through many dangers, toils, and snares, I have already come. Tis grace has brought me safe thus far, and grace will lead me home. It's all there, isn't it? Our wretchedness, our deliverance from fear, our claim of grace to see us through, and to lead us home. What is it in your life, from your past, that's just holding you back? You say, well, I've given it to God. Well, give it to God and leave it there. Don't allow the devil to continue to, to create your identity based on a past person. You are a new creature in Jesus Christ, even if it's only starting today. And if he can take a Saul and turn him into a Paul, what can he do with you? Amazing grace. How sweet the sound. It's saved a wretch like me. Our dear Lord, our Heavenly Father, we all are in need of grace. We need you to cover us, to forgive us, to transform us, to renew us into the image of our Father, our Heavenly Father. And Lord, the, the verses that we oftentimes claim, many of which that we have memorized, we're reminded again this morning, have come off the lips of a man 
who did horrific things. Yet you said, I can use him. And you say that about us. I can use him. I can use her for my purposes, for my glory, for my honor. If they'll simply turn, if they'll simply surrender, if they'll allow me to do a work in their life that I long to do. And so, Lord, I imagine there's somebody here that needs to respond in some way. And so, Lord, if if that prayer is ours, if we want to say, Lord, forgive us of our past, cleanse us from all unrighteousness, restore unto us the joy of your salvation, bathe us with your grace, not just for salvation, but for sanctification and for your glorification. Lord, if that's somebody's prayer here, I just pray that they'll raise their hand just now and say, Lord, I want to be a recipient of your grace. I want to be a champion of grace. I want to treat people with grace. And I want to be enabled to do any and all of those things by your grace. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. This media was brought to you by Audioverse, a website dedicated to spreading God's word through free sermon audio and much more. If you would like to know more about Audioverse, or if you would like to listen to more sermons, please visit www.audioverse.org.